Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1046, Matthew chapter 18. If you're a guest with us today, we've been working uh, verse by verse through this section of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come uh, to the beginning of chapter 18, which is a very significant uh, chapter in this gospel. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, unless you become like children. Now, kiddos, make sure you, if you have a Bible, that you open it to chapter 18. If not, look over uh, on your parents' Bible. There is a child in this account that we're going to look at today that takes center stage. And so you don't want to miss it. You want to pay attention to what's happening in the text. Okay, Matthew chapter 18. And we'll begin reading in verse number 1. And this is what the Word of God says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 18 begins the fourth of five major teaching sections in this gospel. Many have referred to this chapter as the discourse on the church because it contains the second use of the word church that is found in Matthew's gospel. And in response to four questions that were put to him, Jesus explained some of the governing principles of the kingdom of heaven. It is no exaggeration to say this morning that this is the single greatest teaching that Jesus ever gave on the church. In this chapter, Jesus sets the tone for life in his church, where children are honored and protected where sinners are treated as lost sheep to be found and as brothers to be reclaimed, and where forgiveness flows freely and constantly to those who repent. The first four verses that we've just read set the stage for all that will follow. In these verses, Jesus uses an analogy to illustrate what it really means to be a Christian. And the rest of the chapter unpacks how we as Christians should relate to one another in the church. The first lesson that Jesus gives in this masterful sermon is that unless you and I become like children, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So notice with me, first of all, in verse number one, the problem revealed. Matthew writes, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The phrase that he begins verse 1 with, at that time, 
uh, ties us back into the end of Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 27. And Matthew is showing us that these two scenes are closely connected in time and in thought. On the same day that the disciples received teaching from Jesus about what it means to be a citizen in the world at the end of Matthew chapter 17, on that same day they are given a series of lessons about what it means to be children of God. Now Luke in his account of this passage, in Luke chapter 9, in verse 46, says this. Listen carefully because this sets the stage for what happens in these verses. Luke says, An argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Now, did you hear what he said? An argument arose among the disciples. The disciples are fighting. And they're fighting, Luke says, about which one of them are the greatest. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 9 and verse 33 that they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? Now, let me bridge the two accounts for you from Luke and Mark. Luke says the disciples are arguing and they're arguing specifically about which one of them is the greatest. And Mark says that when they got into Peter's house at Capernaum, Jesus knew that they had been arguing and fighting. And so he asked them what they were arguing about. Now, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 34, Mark records how the disciples responded to Jesus' question in the house over what they were arguing about. Listen carefully to what Mark says that the disciples did in response to Jesus' question. They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so Jesus asked them, what were you fighting about? And they remained silent. Now the disciples' silence to Jesus' question shows us that their argument over status and greatness was inconsistent with everything that Jesus had been modeling before them and everything that Jesus had been teaching them. And the fact that they were arguing about their position in the kingdom of heaven shows that they were making very little effort to apply and live out what Jesus had been teaching them. Now, I want you to notice this morning that this will not be the final argument that these disciples will have over position and prominence in the kingdom of heaven. In just a few short chapters, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, Matthew will tell us that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, will come and approach Jesus and make a request of Jesus. And she will ask that Jesus grant that one of her sons sit on his right hand and her other son sit on his left hand when they enter the kingdom. And so what she's really asking is that her two sons get a prominent position and place in the kingdom of heaven. But this one will astonish you. Luke says 
that in the upper room, on the night that Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, that immediately after he told his disciples as they were gathered around that table for that meal, that he was going to the cross and he was going to die, listen to what Luke says happened. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. Did you catch that? Are, are you staying with me in the story this morning? Jesus has just told them, I am hours away from the cross. And what are these 12 men doing? Fighting about which one of them is the greatest. So what's the point with all of this that is happening in the text? It is clear this morning to me, I hope it is clear to you, that there was jealousy and an unhealthy desire for advancement that was taking root in the hearts and in the lives of these disciples. These men were proud. They were self-centered. They were self-sufficient. They were ambitious for rank and for reward in the kingdom of heaven. They aspired for greatness. So Matthew says here in verse number 1, that they finally answered Jesus' question with a question of their own, and they ask him, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, my sanctified imagination at that point when I was studying the text said this, the one whom you just asked the question of, he's the greatest, right? So in light of their argument, and the way they phrase their question in the text, these disciples actually believed that Jesus was going to name one of them as the greatest. Now remember, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew, these men believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hadn't figured out yet why he had to die and when his kingdom was going to come. And their prayers and their desire was that Jesus would usher in his kingdom now, that he would overthrow the Roman government, that he would set up his rule and his reign, and that they would have a prominent place of power and glory in his kingdom and in his rule. And the fact that Jesus has been sharing with them for months that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be murdered, was lost on them. They never considered it. They never thought about what Jesus was telling them. Instead of letting all of these realities sink into their mind, all they could think about was who among them was the greatest. Who had the most prominence. Think about that, friends. They objected to Jesus' crucifixion. They grieved over what Jesus said when he said he must die. But as quickly as they grieved, they quickly forgot everything that he told them. And all they thought about was who was the best. And their question to Jesus here in verse number one betrayed them. 
Do you know why it betrayed them? It revealed their problem of pride. The disciples were void of humility. They were void of compassion. They were void of taking up their own cross, denying themselves, and following Jesus. And lest you and I think this morning that this problem of pride only resides in the disciples. And to guard ourselves from thinking that we don't have this same problem, Warren Wearsby has a statement for us to consider. And this is what he says, and listen to it carefully. By nature, all of us are rebels who want to be celebrities instead of servants. And if that doesn't touch at the heart of what is happening in modern evangelicalism today, I don't know another statement that does. We would rather be celebrities than servants. And so we see this morning the problem revealed. In verses 2 and 3, we see the picture that is given. Now, keep your Bible open and look carefully because this is the heart of the text in these two verses. And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark, in his account, in Mark chapter 9, verses 35 to 37, writes this, And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And listen carefully to what Mark says next. And Jesus took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Luke adds another layer to this account. In Luke chapter 9, verses 47 to 48, listen, I love Luke's description in detail here. But Jesus... Knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Did you hear that? He knew their pride. He knew what was in the deepest recesses of their heart and their life. And he knew the reasoning in their hearts. And so what did he do? He took a child and he put him by his side. Friends, do you see what happened in the text? Jesus's answer to the disciples question of who was the greatest was unexpected it was compelling and it was convicting the disciples were waiting breathlessly for Jesus to name one of them as the greatest but Matthew says in verse number 2 and 3 that Jesus bypassed the disciples altogether and that he called a little child to him. And Jesus put that child in the midst of all of the disciples and he began to teach them. Now the word child that is used in these verses is used here in this context to describe a very young child. 
sometimes even an infant. When you read and study the text carefully, it is reasonable to assume that this child was probably a toddler because Jesus, Matthew says, called to him and he came to Jesus. And so the child was old enough to hear and understand Jesus' call and the child was old enough to respond and come to Jesus. Now remember the context of this passage. Jesus and the disciples are probably in the house of Peter. This child may have even been some kind of a family member of Peter's. They, this child may have already known Jesus. And in any case, Jesus called to the child. The child heard the call. The child responded. And the child came to Jesus. Jesus loved children. And by inference in this text, the children loved Jesus. And Mark says that Jesus scooped that little child up, sat him in his lap, and that was the setting that Jesus began to teach the disciples about what it means to be a Christian. Now I want you to listen carefully to your pastor. You need to pay attention to what I'm about to unpack for you in this text. There's all kinds of distractions this morning. It'd be easy for you to move away from the text and put your mind on other things. I don't know of a more important passage of Scripture that I am going to unpack and explain to you than this one that I have done in recent months. So you need to stay engaged. You need to pay attention. You need to listen carefully to what I am about to say. Look in verse 3. As Jesus sat before the disciples holding this child in his arms, Matthew says that Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus finally did answer the disciples' question, do you see what he did? He turned their question on its head. The disciples, look at the text carefully. This is a monumental statement that I am about to give to you this morning. The disciples wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom. But when Jesus finally responded to them, Jesus wanted them to consider if they were even in the kingdom to begin with. Do you see that? He turned it on its head. Jesus, who is the greatest? Disciples, you need to think about whether or not you are even in my kingdom based on your question. And so then Jesus says, do you see it in the text? Unless you turn, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word unless is a word that unlocks everything else that Jesus says in this verse. It introduces a necessary condition that must be fulfilled in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says, unless you do this, you will never 
enter the kingdom of heaven. Now look at the text carefully. It's personal. Unless you do this. What Jesus is unpacking and telling the disciples, only the disciples can do. Jesus cannot do it for them. No one else can do it for them. Individually, all 12 of them must do what Jesus says in this verse, or they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what was true for the disciples is true for you and for me. It always comes down to the you. Nobody can respond to Jesus and his word and his truth for you. Only you can do that. Children, your mom and dad can't do it for you. You have to respond to Jesus. You have to respond to his word. So unless you, look at the text, turn. Unless you turn, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This word is a word that is used in Scripture to describe repentance. It means to make an about face and to go in the opposite direction. The nature of this word also provides the possibility of translating it this way. Unless you are changed, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This word is used repeatedly throughout the New Testament book of Acts. And here's how it's used in the book of Acts. Listen carefully to it. It it helps you get the idea and the meaning of the word and what Jesus is telling you. It speaks of turning from unbelief to belief. From being away from God to turning to God. From turning from darkness to turning to light. From turning from the power of Satan to turning to God. Peter used this word turn in Acts chapter 3 in his second sermon twice. And this is what he said in Acts chapter 3 in verse 19. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. It's a turning from the direction that you're going into the opposite direction. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 26, he said it this way, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You're turning away from your wickedness. You're turning to God and you're turning to his righteousness and to his goodness. You're turning away from unbelief and you're turning to belief. You're turning from darkness to light. You're turning from being away from God to turning to God. It is going in a different direction. The Apostle Paul summarized the meaning of this word best when he was writing and describing his love for the believers in Thessalonica. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, this is how Paul described this church that he loved. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is turning. You turn from your idols and you turn to God. and You serve Him, the living and true God. 
Now, I've tried over the years to explain repentance to you, and I've used the stage and everything, and I, I could not think of another illustration than this one. And so here's, here's the best picture of it. I'm going this way in my unbelief. I'm going this way in my wickedness, in my unrighteousness, in my ungodly living. I'm going this way away from God. And then my eyes are open, and I see and understand the truth, and I make an about face, and I go back in the other direction. That is turning. That is changing. That is repentance. And look at your Bible this morning, friends. I don't want you to think I'm making anything up. Jesus said in his own words, unless you turn, you will never go to heaven. That's it. It can't be any clearer than that. You are going in the opposite direction. That's turning. Nothing else. And if you don't turn, you'll never enter God's kingdom. But he's not finished. Look at the text again. Jesus tells the disciples that not only must they turn, they must become like children. Now you have to talk to the text. What does it mean to become like a child? What does it mean? Well, this is where interpreters go off the rails in this passage of Scripture and in this chapter. They talk about all of the wonderful, redeeming qualities of children. And they forget about the fact that children are born sinners. And that the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And so I want you to know this morning, dear friends, that children are not sinless. And children display their fallen nature every single day of their lives. And if you are parents this morning, you know this to be true. If you are grandparents this morning, you've forgotten about this. <laughs> so he is not talking about redeeming qualities of children because there are none. So what is he talking about? Well, I got help from a commentator named R.T. France, and he said this, A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society. They were subject to the authority of the elders. They were not taken seriously except as a responsibility they were someone to be looked after, not someone to be looked up to. In the society of Jesus' day, children were insignificant. So he's not talking about redeeming qualities of children. Well, Pastor, what's he talking about? Well, if you look in verse number 4, he'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about the humility of a child. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. What does it mean to become like children? To be humble. I quote D.A. Carson, foremost New Testament scholar. The child is a model in this context, not of innocence, not of faith, not of purity, but of humility and of unconcern for social status. 
Jesus assumed that people are not naturally like that, that they must change and become like little children. Jesus is emphasizing humility because humility is the exact opposite of what the disciples were portraying in their pride. And according to Jesus, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have the status of a child, which in Jewish terms means no status at all. You're nothing. Now look at the text again, and I want to point out another word to you on which this text hinges. We've looked at the word turn, and now we're going to look at the word become. This word speaks of a change. In theological terms, it means conversion. It means you change spiritually. And Jesus, notice in the text, he combines turning and becoming or changing together as requirements for entrance into his kingdom. So when you turn, you're sorry for your sin, and you're sorry enough for your sin that you turn away from it. And when you become, you have a change that takes place in your life. When you turn from your sin and you turn to God, you are changed. And unless you turn, and unless you are changed, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you say, Pastor, is, is there a verse that you can point us to that will tie these two thoughts together and illustrate it for us? Yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. And this is what Paul says as he's speaking about the cross of Christ and the work that Christ did on the cross and how that is brought into our life. And he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's the key. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, there's, there's two kinds of people in this room this morning. There's the people who are standing in Christ, and there's the people who are apart from Christ. And when you're apart from Christ, it means you've not turned, and it means you've not changed. It means that you're standing positionally in your sin. You're standing positionally in your disobedience to God. You're standing positionally in all your worldly attitudes and worldly thinking and worldly desires. You are, in effect, positionally standing in your sin, in darkness, separated from God. And that's why you continue to do the same things that you struggle to do. Because you're separated from life. You're separated from God. You're separated from power. But when you turn and you come to Christ away from your unbelief, away from your darkness, away from your sin and your rebellion, and you turn to Christ and you trust in Christ, positionally you move from being in your sin to being in Christ. That means that sin no longer has a hold on you. That means that now when God looks at you, he no longer sees you in your sin. He sees you in his son. That's what it means to be in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Just think about all the sin that you've struggled with in your life. When you come to Christ, God looks at you and he no longer sees all that sin. He sees his beloved son in your life. 
You are standing in Christ. And when you come to Christ and you're standing positionally in Christ, you know what happens? You're changed. Your old life is gone. Your new life has come. That's why I've given you this statement before. If there's no change, there's no Christ. Because it is impossible to positionally be in Christ and not be changed. The old is gone. The new has come. It's that simple, friends. You turn and you become. You are changed. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You must turn and you must be changed. But do you know what the truth of the Bible is? You can't turn and you can't be changed on your own. And yet, if you want to go into the kingdom, you must turn and you must be changed. And you say, oh, okay, pastor, you're going to have to explain that one to me. Oh, I plan to, plan to. Jesus had a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus what it meant to be a true Christian. In John chapter 3 and verse 3, this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then when you go on to read the rest of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Nicodemus is just asking questions. Lord, how can I be born again? I've already been born once. Am I supposed to go back through the whole birthing process again? How does this work? You're telling me i got to be born again. You're telling me, listen, for the purposes of our text, you're telling me, Pastor, you have to turn. You're telling me you have to be changed. And then you're telling me that you can't do it on your own. You have to have somebody do it for you. How in the world does that work? You've got the same question Nicodemus had. And do you know what Jesus gave him for an answer in John chapter 3 and verse 8? Nicodemus, listen to it. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. That's it. How do you turn? How do you change? You must be born of the Spirit of God. That the third person of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, must come like the wind on your life and blow across your life and open your eyes so that you would see your sin, so that you would see your shame, so that you would see your unbelief and your rebellion and your separation from God and give you the desire to turn and give you the power to turn. And to turn away from all of that and to turn to Christ. And the moment you turn to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are changed. That's how it takes place. And it's like the wind. You can't manufacture it. You can't manipulate it. You can't ask somebody to hold up their hand, ask somebody to sign a card, ask somebody to pray a prayer. You listen to your pastor. You can do all of those things and the Holy Spirit never blow across your life. But I'll tell you this, when the Spirit blows across your life like a wind, you won't have to have anybody else convince you. You will know. Because you'll be different. 
You'll be changed. You have to turn. You have to believe. You have to be changed. But you have to have the power of the Spirit of God birthing you into God's kingdom. And Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you'll never enter my kingdom. You say, Pastor, you've got to help me with this. Just keep listening. I'm trying to help you. To become like children is to be dependent, is to be helpless, is to be humble. And that's the way into the kingdom. You're dependent, you're helpless, and you're humble. There's a parallel passage to this passage, and it takes place early in the Gospel of Matthew. It takes place in Matthew chapter 5. That's the beginning of Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing that Jesus does in that sermon is proclaim the Beatitudes, the attitudes that are to be in the life of a Christian. And he is unrelenting from the get-go of his sermon. Like, you think my sermons are hard? You need to listen to Jesus's. Listen to how he begins. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what he means when he says the poor in spirit? It's not talking about wealth. It's talking about the poverty of your spirit. Like you're sitting in this room this morning. You're hearing about turning and changing and sin and unbelief and rebellion. And you're saying, the pastor's read my mail this week. He's talking specifically to me. And what I would say to you is, that's not me talking to you. That's the Holy Spirit that's got your number. And you are poor in spirit. You're saying, that's me. I need help. I need Christ. Excellent. You're a perfect candidate to be a child. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So many pastors use this verse to talk about worldly grief. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He says when you mourn, it is directly connected to the poverty of your spirit. You realize this morning that you are spiritually bankrupt without Christ, and you're mourning and grieving over your condition. You're sorrowful for your sin and your separation from God. That's what it means to mourn. Oh, you think he's done? Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Poverty of spirit, I am nothing. God, I'm mourning over my sin. God, I'm coming to you in humility and dependence and meekness. He's still not finished. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Your poverty... Your grief and sorrow over your sin, your humility leads to a hunger and a desire for what's right and for what's true and for what's noble and for what is excellent. And oh, by the way, you know what that is describing? Change. Change. This is what it means to become a child of the kingdom. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't do anything in your own power to gain entry into the kingdom of heaven. Do you know how you get into the kingdom of heaven? You become like a child. You become humble, dependent, and you receive from God your salvation. Do you know what the truest mark 
of a person who is really a Christian is, they're humble. They're humble. And notice what Jesus says. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn and unless you become like a child. When Jesus says that you'll never enter the kingdom, do you know what it presupposes? That you're outside of the kingdom and you need to come in. And I want you to know that every single person in this room this morning that has never turned and never been changed by Christ is outside of the kingdom. And you'll always remain outside of the kingdom until you turn and become like a child. Friends, this is devastating. This is crushing. But that's, listen, that's what needs to happen to pride. It needs to be devastated. It needs to be crushed to make room for humility. So we not only see the problem revealed in the picture given, in verse number four, we see the principle explained. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever, that's good news this morning, friends. It can be for anyone. Whoever will humble themselves like that little child sitting on Jesus' lap can enter the kingdom of heaven. Just think about children for a minute. Think about toddlers. They wake up every day of their life as a toddler in humble dependence upon their caregiver to give them food, to give them clothing, to give them toys, to give them an agenda for the day, to give them direction for their life, to tell them when it's time to take a nap, when it's time to go to bed. And they're dependent upon that. That is the picture that Christ is painting of what it means to be a Christian. You are dependent upon him and him alone. Humility. True humility doesn't exalt itself above, above others. True humility doesn't compare itself to others. True humility this morning doesn't say, well, I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. Have you seen how they live? Have you seen how they act? Have you seen how they talk? Have you seen what they do? I'm better than them. And if I'm better than them, then surely I'm good. That's not true humility. That is pride. And it, listen, let me just help you this morning. If you want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to Jesus. That's who your comparison is. And you will fall short every time. The truly humble person sees themselves as they really are before God. It's not the person who knows the most theology. It's not the person who wins the most souls. It's not the person who suffers the bravest as a martyr who is greatest in God's kingdom. Do you see the text this morning, friends? Do you see the text? 
The greatest person in the kingdom of heaven is the person who humbles themselves like a child, fully dependent upon Christ. That's why James said in James chapter 4 and verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exalt you. He'll lift you up. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. To be great in the kingdom of God is to be totally disinterested in greatness. <laughs> to be great in the kingdom of God is not to care one thing about position or prominence, to be great in the kingdom of God is to be fully dependent upon Christ and serve others. The Christian faith is not a celebrity faith. It's a humble faith. So we've seen the problem revealed, the picture given, and the principle explained. Now is when you ask the question, what are we to do with this pastor? I'm so glad you asked. And if you didn't ask, I was going to tell you anyway. I'm sure you're surprised by that too. Six applications. Application number one. Now I want you to listen to each of these carefully because they are different for different people in this room this morning. Application number one. This passage strikes at the heart of the celebrity culture that is consuming Christianity today. Listen to me. For those pastors, those church leaders, and those Christians trying to attain worldly success and worldly favor, for those trying to be prominent, to create a brand, and build an empire for yourself, my question for you simply this morning based on this text is, what do you do with this passage of Scripture? Do you know what the answer is? You ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. For those who live and die by the number of followers on their Instagram page, the number of retweets you get, the number of friends on your social media page, what do you do with this passage of Scripture? For those immersed in the prosperity gospel, seeking to live a lavish lifestyle and praying on the people of God and begging for more money so you can have jets and big houses and all of these things, what do you do with this passage? Have you not forgotten what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21? That on the day of judgment, many will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these mighty miracles in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. This passage destroys celebrity Christianity. And you say, oh, pastor, why are you making that application here in this little local church? We don't have any problems with that. I bet you there's some in this room this morning that watch some of the preachers that I'm referring to in the application that I've just made. And I want you to hear your local pastor, the one who will do your funeral, not that guy on TV. He is a false teacher. And you should turn him off. He's leading you astray. Because then you come into a place like this and you say, why can't my pastor talk like that and be like that? 
application number two. This passage strikes at the heart of the self-righteous. Those who think they are better, wiser, stronger, and more gifted than everyone else. Do you not see today, friend, that your self-righteousness will never get you into the kingdom? Do you not see that your comparison is not with those around you, but with the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And when you compare yourself to him, all you can do is bow before him in humble submission, begging for his mercy and grace. Do you not see this morning that your self-righteousness is consuming you, destroying you, destroying your family, and destroying those around you? You need to turn from your self-righteousness and be changed. Application number three. This passage strikes at the heart of the good person. And that may describe you today. You may have been sitting here listening to this long-winded pastor get excited about the Word of God. And you may have been saying to yourself, I'm a good person. I've got good morals. I've got good values. I work hard. I take care of my family. I take care of my responsibilities. I know I'm not perfect. But I think in the end, all of the good will outweigh the bad. After all, I'm a religious person. I go to church from time to time. I give to good causes. I try to help other people. I'm a good citizen. My question for you today, friends, is this. Do you not realize that hell is going to be full of good people? It is going to be full of good, moral, upstanding, responsible people. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there's no one that is good. No, not one. And this passage destroys your idea of being good enough to enter. You'll never be good enough. You must humble yourself. Application number four. This passage strikes at the heart of the deceived. There are, I, I know... I know with all of my heart that there are people in this room this morning that this passage has described. That there are people in this room who think they are a Christian because they walked an aisle, because they filled out a card, because they raised a hand, because they prayed a prayer, or because they did something else. This passage destroys that. Because those aren't the keys to the entrance. The key to the entrance is turning and changing. And here's the reality. You're resting your interest into heaven on something that you did that man developed. Instead of resting your entrance into heaven on what God says must take place in your life. Here's the reality. I know I'm describing some in this room this morning. You still talk the same way that you've always talked. You still get drunk. You still treat your wife bad. You still treat your kids bad. You are difficult to be around. Nothing has changed in your life. In fact, it's just grown sourer. And the reason that that has happened is because you've never turned and you've never been changed. And if you were to lean over right now this morning and look at your wife and ask her this question... Have I been changed? She'd tell you the truth. 
You think the pastor knows your mail? God really knows it, and so does your wife. So does your spouse. So do your children. That's why they pray for you, that, that sometime you would come to church and the Holy Spirit of God would blow like the wind on your life, and you'd be different when you left. And you're oblivious to all of it because you signed a card, you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle, you did something man-centered and man-driven. And in the end, it will fail you. It will fail you. You know how I know you're not changed? You don't have a desire for church. You don't have a desire for the things of God. You make excuses. You do this. You do that. You justify everything. And when you've really been changed, you realize all you can do is be humble before Jesus. They say it's crushing. And listen, listen to me. I love you too much as your pastor not to confront your deception. I love you too much for it. I'm going to give an account for your soul one day on the day of judgment. I am going to tell you the truth. I don't care how mad you get at me. Application number five. I'm almost finished. This passage strikes the heart, at the heart of the intellectual who thinks that they are wiser than God's word. They're the expert on religious matters and different faiths. And I just want to say to you this morning, you should just quit trying to compare Jesus to all these other religions and make a hodgepodge of faith for yourself and try to work all this stuff out because this text says to you, the intellectual this morning, that unless you humble yourself like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because what Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6 is still true. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. No one. Jesus is not one of many ways. He is the only way. Jesus is not one of many truths. He is the only truth. He is the only way to life in heaven. And unless you humble yourself before the truth of God's word, believe what he says and respond accordingly, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Last application. I just simply want to ask the question this morning. Are you a child of the king? Have you come to the point in your life where you realize that you're a sinner, that God is holy, that your sin separates you from God, and that you desperately need a savior? And have you, like a child, humbled yourself in mourning and grief and sorrow over your spiritual condition and cried out to God to save you. There's only one person with whom you can trust your life and your eternity. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, if you'll humble yourself, he will receive you. All you have to do is turn and become like a child. Let's pray.